So our reading this morning is from Ezra chapter 3, and we're going to read in the whole chapter. These scriptures um, from which I'm about to read are described as God-breathed. They are his word, and they're a gift to us um, as his church. And if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, we would love you to have one. So you can find some at the back of the church, and feel free to take this home with you as well. We're told of God's divine love for us through these scriptures, and through them, he reveals his character to us. So after this reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all respond together, thanks be to God. So let us settle our hearts and hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of, God to, of, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the, bur- the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jodadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the, from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upwards to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua and his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. 
so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the shout, the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Let us pray. Um, Father, thank you for the blessing that is to be here this morning, that every day um, is anew with you. I pray that as Andrew comes up to speak, that you'll bless him and speak through him on these verses from Ezra. Please still our hearts and our minds and open them to hear what you have to say to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Um, we're, we're just continuing through Ezra and Nehemiah uh, this week. And, and as you, uh, just as a recap, like uh, these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are one book and they tell the story of the Hebrew people's return from exile. Uh, they have uh, been for 800 years repeatedly unfaithful to God and kind of abandoned his ways. And this eventually leads them to being conquered by the Babylonians and where they would spend 70 years in exile. Um, uh, but even though they were unfaithful to God, God was always faithful to them. So he has made a way for them to come back out of exile, back to their homeland, that the, what we call the promised land. And, and so around 50,000 people at this point uh, have gone back uh, to their, their towns and villages where they were originally from, where their families were from, and they've spent the last several months settling in. And this is where we join the story today. Um, we join the story where they've come back from their original towns and villages and gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, last year in September, uh, I was lucky enough to I mean, I'm going to talk about cycling. I'm sorry for people, James, you know, it's like, I've got a few things I like to talk about. Um, but I was lucky enough to go to France and do a bit of cycling. Um, and so I flew to Bordeaux in the southwest of France and spent six days cycling to Paris in the northeast. And it was a great trip, not just because I had time on my own, but because France is gorgeous. Like, the, the countryside is beautiful. And every day I would cycle through these, the, the, the countryside, and I would cycle through at least a few villages along the way, right? And one of the things I noticed really quickly is that all these villages, they have church buildings in the center of them. Um, so you would have a church building and then a wee square, and then all the houses and streets would come off from that. It was almost as if the, the, the village or had, had grown up around the church. And the church building would always be by far the tallest building in, in the village. So you'd be cycling along the road and you'd see a church spire and you'd go, oh, I'm getting close to the next village, right? Um, and there's something really striking about having a reminder of the church in the center of a village like that. But sadly, a reminder is all that it is because a lot of these uh, church buildings no longer have even a small church that meets inside them. Um, most of them are just community centers now uh, or tourist attractions. So you go and visit these old church buildings in the way that you might go and visit a castle to get the sense of uh, some kind of history. But at one time in France's past, Worship of God was at the center of community life, but now they're just empty buildings. The structures of worship are there, but the heart of worship isn't. And it's completely possible to have the structures of worship without having the heart of worship. We can have a good structure of church. We can have a really good kids ministry. We can have good Bible teaching. We can have missional communities and even serve the poor. We can have all these things and still be missing true worship of God. And I wonder, do we even do this in our own lives? Are, are we in danger of having all the structures of worship without actually worshiping Jesus? On the other hand, 
Some of us lean the other way, and we want to reject the structures altogether. We, we, we say, well, I don't, need, I don't need any of that stuff. I just need Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't, I don't need tradition. I don't need the creeds to tell me what I believe. I don't need any of that stuff. And while I think this part of our story in Ezra speaks to both those attitudes, and in this passage, what we see is that right worship of God is the first priority of our new life in Jesus. Right worship of God is the first priority of our new life in Jesus. See, the Hebrews are, are coming back from exile, and they're starting over, like starting from scratch. And so it was essential to focus on the, the highest priority, on the first priority. And for us as believers, our relationship with God can only be rekindled and kept alight by obedience to God and worship. We, like the Hebrews in Ezra, have been brought back from exile. Our exile was, was not a foreign land, but our exile was away from, from God, separation from God because of, of sin. But because of His great love for us, God has made a way through Jesus to bring us out of exile and back into the home that He has made for us in Jesus. And, and we, as Christians, are now on a, a journey like the Israelites of joining God in His renewing work of building His kingdom. That's why we're doing the Cozy Hub, even though the name's terrible, but we're doing the Cozy Hub nonetheless. That's why we join with the food bank. That's why we sing songs to worship Him. That's why we have missional communities that love each other and love our city. And a kingdom, that His kingdom will one day be complete when Jesus returns. But for now, we exist in this now and not yet of joining God in this renewing work. This is the new life that we've been brought into through faith in Christ. And what we see in this passage is that the first thing we need to be about in this new life we have in Jesus is right worship of God. There are priorities, right? We all have priorities in life. But for us as Christians, we need to have our priorities in the right order. And it goes like this. First things first, everything else second, some things never, and one thing always. So first things first, that is to worship God in the right way. Verses 1 to 6 that Lauren read for us, <coughs> all those tricky names that I can't pronounce, she did great. Um, verses 1 to 6 in this passage tells us that the Israelites have gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, this would be pretty common because actually, according to the law, before they went into exile, they would all have to go to Jerusalem three times a year for these festivals as kind of pilgrimages to celebrate and, and to what God has done and who He is. And so they're there in Jerusalem. And they, they get Jeshua, who is the, the new priest. He's one of, he's, his, his ancestors are priests, and so he's the new high priest. And he, they get him to lead them in building the altar, and they begin regular practices of worshiping God through offering sacrifices according to the law of Moses. Now, maybe if you thought about this as I did this week, you might think, why would you start there? Like, why would you start by building an altar and offering sacrifices? Surely, you would start with building the walls of the city, especially if you read verse 3, because it says, fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. They had enemies. They had people who wanted to, to stop what they were doing. There were people who hated the fact that they were doing this rebuilding work. People who probably moved into the land after all the, exile, all the Israelites had left in exile. Why would they... Why would they uh, not have focused on keeping themselves safe. We'll build the walls and then we'll build the altar. Or, or why not even start by building the temple? I mean, the altar is just one small part of the temple. Why would you start there? Would it make sense to, to build the temple structure and then put the altar in after that? 
It'd be a bit like trying to build a house by starting with the stairs. You know, it doesn't make sense. But even though they're in danger, and even though the, the, the king of Persia had decreed that they should go back and rebuild the temple, they know that the altar is where they need to begin. Because right worship has to be the focus of our new lives out of exile. And this passage talks about the altar, but actually the focus isn't on the altar at all. The focus is the purpose of the altar. Straight away, they, they, they start regularly offering sacrifices to God. In fact, in verses 1 to 6, uh, the offerings and, and burnt offerings is, is mentioned at least seven times. See, the, the altar for them wasn't just like a, a nice centerpiece. It wasn't like just to give the temple a nice kind of barbecue smell. That's not what it was for. The, the sacrifices were vital in reconciling the people to God and having their sins forgiven. They couldn't approach God at all without the altar. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The idea of justice, wrongs have to be made right. And the people have been exiled away from God's presence because of their sin and their unfaithfulness to God. And it wasn't enough for them just to come back to the land. They had to be made right with God. And the only way to be made right with God is through sacrifice. Now, the other thing to note here is that everything they do is in very specific way, right? In verse 3, we, say, we see that they, they didn't just put the altar in any old place. They put the altar in its place. Verse 2 tells us that he offered burnt offerings as it is written. Verse 4 tells us they keep the Feast of Booths, which is one of their, one of their festivals, as it is written. Verse 4 also tells us that they offered these sacrifices as each day required. There was an order and a way they did these things. Everything they were doing as they worshipped God was according to what He had said in His Word. And one of the reasons they had been exiled in the first place is because they had rejected God's Word. And so now they realize, okay, God has brought us back, and so we need to approach God in the way He has told us to. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that, that right worship of God is the, is the first priority of our lives, but it has to be based on forgiveness of sins through sacrifice according to His Word. Right worship of God is based on forgiveness of sins through sacrifice according to His Word. The Israelites came to God through the basis of forgiveness of their sins through sacrifice according to what God had said in His Word. And it's no different for us. We're made right with God through the once and for all sacrifice of God's own Son, Jesus, when He died on the cross. That's the sacrifice. And we know this and receive this based on what God had said in His Word. That's why we literally open this thing every week and go through line by line. What is it saying? And if worshiping God in the right way is to be the first priority of our lives, then we need to actually worship Him on this foundation, on the forgiveness of sins according to His Word. You see, if we don't put first things first, if we don't start with building the altar and worshiping Him through the forgiveness of sins and, and based on His Word, if we don't get that first, then the whole thing will come tumbling down. You have to start with the first priority. And sometimes when Finley is building a new Lego set, right, he'll come to me about halfway through and he'll be like, there's something wrong with this. It's this half-built, you know, car or whatever. And, and it's like, it's not quite right. He's like, I can't figure it out. And usually what has happened is that he has missed a step way back in the early stages. 
You know, it's right in the middle of the thing, and you have to take it apart and try and figure it out. He's missed us something, or he's, he's put something in the wrong place. And the point is that if the first priority isn't right, then the rest of what we do will be wrong. Right worship of God needs to be our first priority, giving God His proper place, recognizing Him for who He is. We are reconciled to God by having our sins forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus according to what He has said in His Word. And then we build our lives around worshiping Him on that foundation. God must be at the center of our lives. Forgiveness of sins should bring us to worship. You see, the people of Israel's whole identity was based on their worship of the one true God. That was what made them different from all the nations around them, wasn't it? True worship was their identity. And I wonder if the same could be said for us. Is worshiping God our identity? Is it the first priority of our lives? And I don't just mean, you know, listening to worship music or something in your car or coming to church and being part of a gathering or, or lifting your hands up during the songs or being part of a missional community. I mean true worship, right worship. Coming to God on the basis that your sins have been forgiven according to what He tells us in the Bible and then living your whole life in response to that. Romans 12 verse 1 tells us, <coughs> excuse me, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, worshiping God is no longer about offering daily sacrifices on an altar. Instead, we daily offer Him our whole lives in response to who He is and what He has done. Present your bodies just means give Him your whole life. Worship isn't just something that happens in your head or in your heart. It's every part of you. Worship isn't just singing some songs or, or coming to gather, and it's about offering every part of your life to God. It's how you spend your money. It's how you go about your work. It's your sexuality. It's how you're single. It's how you're married. It's how you raise your children. It's how you treat your neighbors or how you care for the poor. It's how you mourn. It's how you celebrate. It's what you eat and drink. It's what you wear. It's every part of your life. Worshiping God in the right way is whole life worship. It's living our lives based on the truth that we have been reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. That should be the first priority of our new life in Jesus. We need to get the first things first. We need to get our hearts dedicated to God. That's the first things first. But what comes after that? Well, everything else. Everything else comes second. So we, wanna, we, we, we want to, our lives to be based on worship of God, but... But we also then build the structures around that right worship. What does that mean? Well, in verses 7 to 10, so the second section of this passage, we see that they finally get to work on the very thing they've come out of exile to do, right? The, the, king, of, the king of Persia has sent them back, go and rebuild the temple. And so now, a year almost after they've come back, they start to do this. So they employ builders and carpenters, then they import logs and wood from Tyre and Sidon, nearby nations, and they get organized with the Levites, who were the, the, the tribe of priests. And these guys oversee the work, and then Jeshua, who is the, the new high priest, he oversees the workmen. And so everything is organized, and the work begins to take shape. But 
I think it's important to note that it was only after the patterns and rhythms of regular worship were established that work on the temple began. They were only going to join God in this rebuilding work once their hearts had been made right with God. That's why they're offering the sacrifices before they even begin to work on the, the, the temple. Get your heart right, then build the temple. Be reconciled to God by having your sins forgiven through sacrifice, and then build all the structure around that. See, the people don't worship because a building is built. Building is built because the people are worshiping. And it's the same for us in the church. See, it's totally possible to focus on building a church and all the things that come along with that, but not have hearts that truly and rightly worship God. We can, with the best intention in the world, put our efforts into having the right kind of music or a good kids ministry or things for the youth or really solid Bible teaching, even caring for the poor, and still miss the point that God desires us and not our efforts. You ever think about that? Like God wants you. He doesn't want what you can do for Him. And all these things are good things, but He wants our hearts to be in awe of Him, to be devoted to Him, reconciled to Him through Jesus, and then give your life to Him in response to that. Everything else comes second. You see, the church isn't a, a build it and they will come type of project. The church is built because people come. The Hebrews could have built the most spectacular and beautiful temple. They could have covered it in carvings and sculptures and gold and jewels, like, like lots of those church buildings I saw in France. They're beautiful buildings. Architectural masterpieces from bygone eras. But if they weren't reconciled to God, then, then what would be the point? You can have the most beautiful structure in the world. You can have the most beautifully organized Bible reading plan and prayer plan. All those things in your life, be involved in X, Y, and Z, it can be beautiful, stunning, an example to other people. But if you're not reconciled to God, if you're not coming to Him on the basis that, that Jesus has died for you and you have nothing else, then it's the wrong way around. And sometimes we do that. We live good Christian life and we do lives and we do all the things that Christians are meant to do, but we miss that our hearts are still far away from God. We can be involved in all ministries and serving on teams and doing summer camps and all these things, and we can be the most well-read person. Like we can read all the latest Christian books and still not worship Jesus in our hearts. And listen, my point is that these are good things, right? Being involved in ministries and serving the poor and reading Christian books and all these things, they are good things, but they are secondary things. Everything else comes second to having hearts that are worshiping God in the right way. Reconciled to Him through Jesus, according to His Word. But listen, on the other hand, while some of us want the structure uh, and not the worship, we, 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 we want to have the good Christian life and, and don't focus on our hearts, some of us just want to reject the structure altogether, don't we? I don't need the tradition. Just give me Jesus. I don't need the church. I just want to worship Jesus on my own. But the thing is, the secondary things are not bad. Not at all. It was important to build the temple. But our priorities need to be in the right order, right? To put the altar in place, 
They did things according to how it was written. They had a focus and dependence on God's Word. And later on, their music and song is based on how King David used to do it and had directed the people to do it hundreds of years before. And so, yes, they prioritized the first things first, as they should do and as we should do, but that didn't mean that they rejected the importance of the secondary things either. God has given us the gift of church history. He's gifted His body with theologians and scholars who can understand His Word in in ways that normal people like us can't. He's given us people who can write songs. He's given us hymns and creeds for our good, to be used in their right place to worship Him in the right way. So I I do think that we need to be careful. Of course, we need to be really careful that our hearts are in the right place and our our first things are actually the first things. But we also need to be careful that, that we're not so busy making sure that the secondary things are secondary that we just throw them out altogether. The first things need to be first, but the secondary things have a place also. One of these secondary things um, that we see in in our story here, in our passage here, is that part of their living lives of whole worship in, in light of the forgiveness of their sins is that they gave of their money and time to the building work, right? We see this in verse 7. It says that they, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters. Somebody had to do the work, <laughs> And somebody had to pay for that work to be done. And this wasn't an organization. This was the people giving of what they, could, they had. We also saw this last week, although we didn't zoom in on it last week, in, at the end of chapter 2, as the people were leaving exile. Chapter 2, verse 68 and 69 says, Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings to the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the, treasure of, the treasury of the work all this money. 61,000 darics, whatever that is, 5,000 minas of silver, so gold and silver, and then 100 priest garments. So if you have any priest garments, give them to the church. Um, Maybe I'll just turn up in robes or something. Um, But what my point is, in response to what God has done to them, they are giving out of their resources, okay? Bringing them out of exile. He's, he's returned them to their homeland. He has forgiven their sins through the sacrifices. And all these things made the people respond by giving to this renewing work out of their resources. This was part of their whole life worship. So, so they're, not, they're, not paying them, they're not giving to the work so that they can be made right with God. They've already spent months getting, uh, doing the, the sacrifices, right? But in response to that, and in light of all of God, had done for them, they thought, how can we not give to this renewing work? How can we not give to the work of God here? They were were bought in, as it were, to God's renewing work. They were part of it, and their generous response to the work proved this. Sacrificial giving is proof of our right worship of God. It's one thing to stand in a church gathering like this on a Sunday morning and sing the songs and say amen to the prayers and even recite a creed or whatever, but it's an altogether different prospect to actually worship God in ways that cost us, be it our time or our money. Giving freely to the work of God is, is part of our right worship of Him as we join Him in His renewing work. This is why uh, giving is, is one of the requirements of, of, of our covenant membership here at Village. Not because we're asking you to pay like a club membership or something, but because given the, the work of God is proof that our lives are oriented around worshiping Him. And notice that, that each gave freely and according to their ability. 
Some have more ability than others, and that's okay. God has given you the resources that you have for a reason. My granny always used to say, uh, the Lord knows who to trust with money, and he can't trust you. And I was like, oh. and he's, she's probably right about that to some degree. Um, that's just a wee confession for you there. Um, and so some of you will be able to give more than others, and that is good and right to do so. And some of you are at a stage of life where you can give more than you used to, or you can give more than you might be able to in the future when kids and mortgages and all that kind of stuff comes along. But no matter what your ability is, giving is proof that your life is oriented around worshiping God. If you want to join God in the renewal of all things, we can't just say that. Somebody just, somebody, uh, well, I heard someone saying once, we, we shouldn't pray your kingdom come if we're not prepared to live your kingdom come. We shouldn't say we're joining God in the renewal of all things if we're not actually joining Him in the re- renewal of all things. We have needs in our church. We give, we give to work in Turkey. We have ministry needs here. We have material needs. We're not important logs from, you know, Lebanon or whatever, but, but we do need an operations director. We need, some, we need someone that can help the day-to-day run of the church. We need resources so that we can heat this building and, and make tea and coffee for people that come in off the street so we can support the work of the food bank down the road. And we are the ones that God has called to meet these needs through the resources He has given us. And this is all part of living lives of worship to God. Yes, we put the first things first. Absolutely. Life built on worship of God in our hearts. But, but, and, but it's really important to put the second things to come after that. But not only that are the first things first and the second, everything else second. There are some things never, okay? Some things never. And what we see here is don't grieve what used to be. In verses 10 to 13, getting towards the end of, of this passage now, the foundation of the temple is finally laid. And, and the people respond by praising God for who He is. And, and, they, and we'll come back to that later on, actually. But not all the people join in with the songs of praise and the great shout to God, right? Look at verse 12 again. I, I think I put it on the screen, yeah. Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, the first temple, the temple of Solomon, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. See, these older people, they had been around before exile, and they had seen the first temple in all its grandeur. And then they saw the foundation of this new temple, and they don't see it as a reason to celebrate. It's smaller. It's not going to be as impressive as the old one. And so, at the end of this story, you have this weird anticlimactic, anticlimactic uh, thing going on where some people are praising God and shouting for joy, and others are weeping out loud, grieving and celebrating. And you can kind of understand where these older people are coming from, can't you? In the first exodus, when the, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and slavery, there, there was over a million people came out. But now, only 50,000 have come back from exile. The Temple of Solomon, the first temple, was the most impressive building in the world. And now this new temple is just a shadow of that former glory. And for them, these old men, things seem to be going backwards and not forwards. But what they didn't see, 
What they couldn't see was that God was getting ready to do the greatest thing yet. Yes, the temple wasn't as big. Yes, it wasn't as going to be as impressive building before. But God was still at work and He was getting ready for the coming of Jesus through His return people from exile. We're going to start Advent in, I think, two weeks now. Wow, three weeks. It's getting close. We're going to join with these people who, who are, are the foundation of the Advent. Jesus is going to come through these people who have been brought back from exile. It's through this returned ex- uh, people from turn, return from exile people that God would raise up the Messiah, the one who would fulfill all God's promises, the one who would be the very embodiment of God keeping His promises. And this is not to say that, that young people are better than old people, by the way. We can be in a, young, a church demographic like us, we can be tempted to think that. Not all progression is a good thing. But that these old people, they couldn't appreciate what God was doing in the present because they were idolizing the past. And as somebody once said, idolizing the past misses the grace of the present. Idolizing the past misses the grace of the present. If we are too stuck on, I wish things uh, could be how they used to be. Or, or do you remember how this church used to be? You remember the early days of Village even? Remember how good it was? Those were the good old days. Why can't it be like that anymore? Remember the church before COVID and how things were different? Wasn't that so much better? Listen, if that's our attitude, then we are in danger of missing what God is doing here and now. We might even miss that He is getting ready to do even greater things than we've even ex- ever experienced. <laughs> first things first, everything else second, but some things never. Don't miss out on what God is doing because we're too busy wishing He could do something different. Because God is faithful. He's faithful to us. And He's still at work. No matter how big or small the project may seem in our eyes. The prophet Haggai actually speaks of into this situation in Ezra, right? And I love this. I love how you see the Bible kind of, you know, interlocking. Um, he gives us this word from God to Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And this is what he says. This is Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. He says this, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So who, who, who are these old, is there anyone here who who's saw the, the temple it, that it used to be in its former glory? How do you see it now? <laughs> He's like, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Aren't you guys seeing this? Like you, you're not appreciating what's going on here. And here's the command he gives them. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Don't have a holiday. Work. Join me in my rebuilding project. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What a word for us, the church, in our time this is, right? I, I mean, you know this, but the church in Europe, uh, we are not the majority anymore. All the statistics point to in Europe, and even in Northern Ireland, the church in the West, even in America, all those places, the church is massively in decline. The majority of our brothers and sisters do not look like us. They look like African women or, or Asian people or South Americans. They don't look like us anymore. The Christian worldview is not the normal view anymore. It's not shared by many people anymore. In, in fact, it's not even tolerated much anymore. 
And maybe you find yourself thinking, Lord, this is so difficult. It's getting so hard to be a Christian. Why can't it be the way it used to be? What happened here? Remember when it was so good? Or maybe even you think of your own life. You think, I don't know, you feel like you used to do more important things for God. I used to do that, and it was so good. And now my life is just normal and boring. Just go to work, or look after my kids, or whatever. Well, listen to this. God is saying to us this morning, just as he said to uh, Jeshua and Zerubbabel two and a half thousand years ago, his word endures, and it's always relevant. He said this, be strong, work, I am with you, I have made a covenant with you, my spirit remains in your midst, and fear not. Like, what a, like these are words to live by, aren't they? This is our charge and our calling from God this morning. He says, be strong, work, I am with you, I have made a covenant with you, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. These are such good words to live by. Our call is not to look back and grieve over what God isn't doing. It's to recognize that He is with us and just get on with the work. He has made a covenant with us through Jesus. His Spirit is in our midst, and so we have no reason to fear. No wonder that people could get on with worship even though they were in danger from the enemies all around them. Because God made a promise to them. His Spirit was in their midst. It's the same for us. So why do we fear? Why do we live in fear? Why do we wish God was doing something different? See that God is in our midst. Well, let's just get on with lives oriented around worshiping Him and then being about His renewing work. So we've seen that we put the first things first. Everything else comes second. There are some things never. But finally, I want to say this. There's one thing always. God is good. One thing always. In verses 10 to 13, we see the response of the people to the foundation of the temple being laid. It says this. Um, oh, where is it? Uh, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, like we saw, and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the, shout, the sound was heard far away. Um, the people joined together and left their voices and praised God through singing and playing their instruments, and, and they are shouting out loud for joy because of what God has done. And this isn't standing with your hands in your pockets, kind of mumbling along to a few songs on a Sunday morning. This is a loud, vocal response. The sound was heard far away. And listen, if the Israelites, if the Israelites sung and shouted in this way, how much more should we? God has done far more for us. He's given His only Son to die in our place. He's defeated our enemy once and for all. He has given us eternal life. We have an eternal home in Him. Why would we not lift our voices loudly to praise Him? Over and over again in Scripture, we're commanded to praise Him through song. 
Paul tells us in Thessalonians to sing spiritual songs to one another. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how bad a singer you think you are because the singing isn't about you. It doesn't matter if you don't like the style of music because the, the music isn't about you. It doesn't matter if you wish we could sing a different song because the song isn't about you. It doesn't matter if you're embarrassed to sing with other people because it's not about you. We should sing loudly because our praise is directed to the Lord. We praise God in spite of our feelings because our praise isn't about Him, about us, it's about Him. And notice this. Notice how the people praise. The people praise God because of who He is and what He has done. Verse 11 says, they sang responsibly. Now, all week I've been reading that as they sang responsibly. <laughs> you know, like, you know adverts on TV, drink responsibly, like sing responsibly. That's how I've been reading all week. I have to keep saying responsibly. It's a V, not a B. Sang responsibly because the foundation was laid, right? This, this word, and it's translated here as sing responsibly and as a response, but the, it actually, in the original language, means answer. They answered God because of what he has done for them. They are giving him songs of praise in response to what he has done. But they also praise him for who he is. And here's how these two things mingle together, who he is and what he has done. They sing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Because he is good, because his steadfast love endures forever. It's kind of awkward, but here's how it works. They are singing the truth that they know about who God is. God is inherently good, and because he is good, he demonstrates his covenant love that has no end. And here, his covenant love, his goodness and covenant love are evident because the foundation of the temple has been laid. In other words, that sounds complicated, but it works like this. They praise God for who he is and what he has done. And what he has done proves who he is. You see how that works? God is inherently good. And because he is good, he demonstrates his covenant love that has no end. And for us, his covenant love and, and his covenant love and goodness are evident because Jesus has died and rose again for us. And this is how we know that God is good. This is the one thing always. God is good. And we know that he is good because he has fulfilled his covenant promise to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us this, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, all of us in our very nature have, have rejected God. We live in a world of, of brokenness and darkness because we've rejected God. Like It, it, it doesn't, doesn't take a genius to see that the, the world isn't right. The darkness and the brokenness are evidence that something has gone badly wrong. But because of His goodness and love for us, Christ died for us even though we had rejected Him. This is the once and for all sacrifice that pays the price for our rejection of God. So there doesn't need to be any more shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus' blood has been shed once and for all. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, and He did rise again from the dead, he defeated the brokenness and darkness all around us. And, and one day he will return and he will finally rid the world of all the brokenness and darkness. And we get to join him in that new world simply by trusting in him. This is the one thing always, that God is always good. And he has proved his goodness to us. I, I, um, 
I haven't seen him in a while, but I, I used to know this guy from Eritrea in, in Northeast Africa, right? And he would say, he would always like, he would always say like, he'd just greet you with like, God is good. And he expected you to say all the time. And then he would say all the time and you had to say God is good. But he said it in a, he said it in his African accent, which I'm not going to do, but it was really, it's just like, a, imagine that's the first thing out of your mouth when you see someone. Hey, how you doing? God is good. That's how, that's how we should live. So in these days when we doubt God's goodness, which we do all the time, don't we? In those times when you're looking back and wishing that things were different, or, or when you're tempted to make the secondary things the, the first things, in those times we can remember that we know God is good. How do we know this? Because of what he has done. Because Jesus died for us. So we put the first things first. Prioritize a life of worship. And then everything else comes secondary. We live lives of whole worship based on the fact of who God is and what he has done. And then there are some things never. We're not grieving and wishing that God was doing something else. But the one thing always, the one thing that never changes is the goodness of God. Not abstract. His goodness isn't just a theory. It's not just something written down. God's goodness is made manifest in the person of Jesus and his death on the cross for us. And so this week, if you need to be reminded of his goodness, let's look to Jesus. And you'll find the goodness of God in him. Come Holy Spirit, let's pray. Uh, Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you are speaking to us right now in this room. We want to thank you that you're not only speaking to us, you're present with us through your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts, bring us to... That's good. Yeah, that's good. Lord, help me today. The end. But Jesus didn't do this. Um, Lord, for anyone who doesn't know you yet, Lord, I pray that you would make yourself irresistible to them and work in their hearts, Lord. Uh, we just ask for the strength to follow you we ask for the grace to love each other. And as Lord, as we come to your table right now to remember your death and resurrection that proves your goodness, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us there and that we would be renewed in our faith. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, that's exactly what we are going to do right now as we do every week. We're going to come.